We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests and the legendary CHML newsroom Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Lots going on today in Ottawa. There's a bit of a, what, what do they call them? Filibuster. There's a filibuster going on. Uh, but no, there's nobody reading green eggs and ham. Instead, they're going over bills which are uh, irrelevant, really, and um, no need for further scrutiny, I guess. Uh, but uh, Pierre Polyev of the Conservatives is protesting the carbon tax and... Uh, whether it's farmers or First Nations or just the rest of us, uh, you know, want what uh, what Atlantic Canada got in a relief from their home heating bills on the carbon tax. And uh, in order to protest that, he's going to keep them there as long as he can by delaying things and 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 Christmas and everything else that, that comes along. Um, uh, is it standoffish? Is it childish? Um, uh, Katrina Gould, who's the Speaker of the House, said it uh, reeks of far-right U.S. politics. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, and, and it does, <laughs> but as I sit back and I think about it, are any Canadians going to be upset because the opposition is keeping the politicians in the House uh, late at night? I don't think they are. So it'll be interesting to see where all this goes, which is probably nowhere. But again, uh, driving attention to the fact that Canadians need some relief and, and the carbon tax, uh, which just keeps accelerating, is a good way to do that. Uh, at least a pause of some sort, like the three years that Atlantic Canada uh, has received. So, um, you know, it's bizarre there and not anywhere else. Uh, and, it, and it's it's bizarre that the prime minister, the government just seems to be totally oblivious to all of this and what the concerns are of uh, the middle class or, as they like to say, all of those that are willing to join it. Uh, those that are willing to join it and then those are the, of us that are hanging on with their bare knuckles just trying to stay in uh, the middle class. Uh, I think the idea is to draw attention to that. And as far as politicians and games, I think we're all kind of used to that by now. And if they have to stay up late at night, I don't think any of us are going to lose any sleep over it. Just saying, oh, do we have a clip? This is a, a clip of the House leader uh, earlier on today talking about this. Canadians deserve better than this risky and reckless, ridiculous behavior uh, that isn't achieving anything except, you know, costing taxpayers more money because we had to be here overnight. We had to pay House of Commons staff time and a half. They all had to stay here. There's no other workplace in the country that would allow this to happen. That's not leadership. He's the classic general that instead of leading his troops into war he's hiding in his house in pajamas and letting the others do his dirty work for him right like the prime minister has been here he's been standing up for canadians so mr polyev is just gaslighting people for clickbait 
I think he was in Montreal uh, lighting a menorah, but that's another story. Anyway, it's just uh, around and around and around and around we go. And uh, it seems, you know, the only attention that uh, we we can get is when this sort of thing is happening. It's uh, very bizarre, but uh, it certainly is not going away. And neither is the stress that most Canadians are family. uh, Most Canadian families are feeling as we head into a holiday season. All right. Big show hope you hang around for it uh auto thefts uh up in this uh, area and, and we've certainly heard the stats and 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 certainly anecdotally of, of stuff that is going on uh now we find out that a lot of these rings or some of these rings that have been going on in the area have been aided by service canada employees so when you go and i guess renew your license or get plates for your new car uh that information makes it into the wrong hands and it gets taken right out of your driveway? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, stuff that's going on in the city this weekend, and there's lots of it, including the Brat Music Festival. We'll talk about that. Also, uh, our favorite space cowboy, Paul Delaney, is going to be joining us from York University. An asteroid is eclipsing a star. It's not something you see every day. But you will next week. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Uh, obviously, around the greater, uh, greater Toronto, Hamilton area, there's been lots of chatter about car theft and um, and just uh, the brazen activity of uh, some of the thieves uh, taking vehicles in, in broad daylight or it doesn't matter what kind of security cam or what have you. Well, now Toronto police have arrested seven people and laid over just 70 charges in an ongoing auto theft inve- investigation that allegedly involved Service Ontario employees conspiring with the suspects. A police said that Project Safari uh, initiated uh, last year uh, was to identify and arrest members of suspected auto theft rings responsible for numerous for, uh, motor vehicle thefts uh, throughout the area. The investigation revealed that several suspects were conspiring with employees of Service Ontario who allegedly trafficking a uh, trafficked vehicle, uh, sorry, driving and vehicle data from the Ontario Ministry of Transportation database. What does that mean? Let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired deputy police chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, and currently the president of Investigative Solutions Network, and with us now. Uh, thank you for the time, Sean. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. How are you? So um, are you surprised, Sean, to see the depth of this, that uh, this isn't just a case of people casing your neighborhood and looking for a vehicle to steal, uh, but actually being aided by Service Canada employees? You know, as sad as it is, I'm not surprised. Uh, organized crime and these type of uh, criminals often infiltrate places like this. Um, they infiltrate places where there's information to be had and they pay people off or bring them into their organizations. It's it's nothing new, and it's uh, unfortunately it does happen. How can this work? What, what's been suspected or alleged here? Basically, what these people are doing is that through Service Ontario, they have access to MTO records, Ministry of Transportation records. And they're able to find out uh, certain vehicles and addresses and all that and give uh, these criminals the opportunity to go to people's homes or find out who they are and uh, able to steal these vehicles from. So they're basically tipping them off to where these vehicles are. Wow. So uh, you don't even have to do any fishing here. You just know where they are and go at it. Yeah, it could be as simple as somebody sees the vehicle on the street and it's one that they want to steal and they uh, number to the employee. Or they have the employees search the uh, the database for certain types of vehicles and where they can find them so they can steal them. And how common do you think this is? Do you think this is, uh, 
we're just at the tip of the iceberg here? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, this this won't be the only instances of this happening. Again, organized crime for forever, and like bikers and everything else, have been known to try implant uh, people into these uh, uh, places that have access to this level of information. Uh, what about the VIN numbers and, and being changed? And, you know, anecdotally, I've got a story of uh, people that I know that in, of odd things were in an Uber ride, and then the Uber ride was hit by a car uh, who ran a stoplight or whatever. The car was stolen, and the VIN number had even been changed. So um, talk a little bit about this and, and what happens here, how that works. Well, it sounds to me like uh, people with access to the records are new VIN numbers, and they're being used onto the onto the vehicles in order to make them seem legitimate and then resell them, basically, so that people think they're buying clean vehicles when, in fact, they're stolen and they've just been re as it's called. And this is primarily uh, during the point of a sale that this would need to happen. How come uh, they wouldn't be able to match up even the type of vehicle to the VIN number? Um, well, the, the VIN number, like it's being put on there, so they steal the vehicle, and then they put a new VIN on it with the t- same type of model. They mm-hmm. put a new VIN on it. So when it goes time for sale, it, the, the VIN matches the vehicle, the type right. of vehicle the person's buying. Uh, this sounds like it's something that's incredibly complex. How easy is this to, you know, we were talking about uh, arrests here in Toronto and such. How, how easy is this to detect? Is this, a, is this a problem that is easily solved or is it, is it really woven in? Well, it's, uh, it's a complex operation, but they have access, they have access to the professionals that can do it. So it makes it simple that way. The average person will be able to but certainly with the access to the, uh, the information. On the policing side, once they, uh, they get into it and they start understanding how they operate a threat and the whole thing will fall apart. But once they have a starting point for it, they're able to, uh, to dismantle it pretty effectively. What would the, any idea, Sean, what the penalty would be for somebody who's doing this or even somebody who's working at a service on terror, service Canada uh, a, a situation and then figure, oh, I can make a few bucks doing this. Like, what would the penalty be for something like that? Well, certainly the the ones, uh, kind of the ringleaders of this, and the ones stealing the vehicles and reventing them, they're certainly uh, looking at uh, probably uh, some, a substantial jail time or prison time. Um, uh, what exactly it's going to be is going to be depending on a number of factors, but I think the people involved are looking at going to jail on this. Will we do more? What can we do more to prevent this sort of thing? A lot of it comes down to the hiring practices for these organizations is doing proper background checks to make sure they're not hiring people that are connected to organized crime and that they don't have criminal past themselves so that they just don't easily get involved in these things. Would somebody who works for the government or a service Canada or in Ontario, whatever, would they normally have to go through those sort of things, Sean, like a, a background check? Um, normally they do just very basic uh, uh, criminal records check on them. Um, they don't do actual uh, thorough background investigations. But people who have access to this kind of sensitive information should be going through thorough background investigations. But unfortunately, in most cases, they're probably not. Will this make a dent in auto theft in southern Ontario? It's certainly a good start. And this is the type of projects that we need in order to slow this down. Um, Over time, they can certainly make a a dent into it. It's unfortunate for the last number of years that it hasn't been a priority in Ontario and it's been allowed to get to this point. But these type of projects will actually shut this down. 
Sean Sparling with us, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently president of Investigative Solutions Network, talking about uh, car theft rings in southern Ontario and being tied allegedly to Service Canada employees. Sean, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Great, thanks. The Brought Music Festival is closing its 2023 season with the musical Magic of Christmas. It's this Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Ancaster Memorial Center, Arts Center on Wilson Street. This performance features Alex Brought, daughter of Boris, making a special appearance to read. It was the night before Christmas, 40 years after making her debut on stage at the age of six while her dad was conducting in Nova Scotia. Alex Brought is with us now. Alex, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. It must be, uh, well, describe what it's like, what this feeling is like to keep this spirit alive. Uh, Well, it's sort of, in this moment, a bit nerve-wracking. I mean, I'm not, this is not my regular gig, so I'm feeling a bit nervous (laughs) about it. But it's, it's, um, it's such a great story uh, or poem, I guess. And it has such a special connection um, with my dad for me. Um, so it's a little bit emotional, but I'm really looking forward to it. Talk about that. What do you remember from that day? Well, I kind of remember, you know, I think I was probably too little to be as nervous as I am now. But um, I remember that. I was surprised that day during the dress rehearsal how big it sounded with an orchestra mm-hmm. right behind you and that it was a super powerful kind of experience having that as you were going along and telling a story. Um, I remember my dad cueing me and um, I just remember how proud he and my mom were at the end. Uh, you talked about him cueing you, making sure you were starting at the right place and such. Do you feel he'll be looking over you and giving you those nods uh, this time out? I think so. I hope so. I, I certainly, I kind of feel like he might be. Um, he he was he had such an amazing, amazing energy that you know palpable and. I certainly felt it, and I know people in the audience definitely felt it. And uh, I, f- I feel like he'll be there. You, you talked about being more nervous now than you were then. Why is that? Just because when you're young, you're you're too naive to realize what it is that you're doing. For example, stepping up in front of an orchestra and feeling the presence. I think so because I think at the time, you know. My dad was always a symphony orchestra conductor, and yeah. I was used to seeing him in front of an orchestra. And um, and so it was. I didn't really understand how. It sort of felt like, oh yeah, this is what my dad does. No big deal. I could probably do this. And um, and now, of course, when you have all like there's forty years between then and now, and you know now it feels a bit different. Uh, do you remember practicing this as a kid? Definitely. I remember um, how we had this, it was a huge hardcover book. um, And my mom had had written across with like post-it notes everywhere, slowly, because I (laughs) wanted to read really quickly. Um, 
slow down and big capital <laughs> letters and highlighted with arrows and stars. Um, yeah, I do, I do remember. Um, and I remember um, practicing with my dad and him having fun. We have like funny inside jokes about um, the story itself. There's a part where it talks about how, you know, when St. Nick is laying a finger aside his nose and he turns around and up the chimney he rose and that's how it is in the story. But I remember my dad used to joke and say, up the nose he rose, which of course would send me into hysterics and <laughs> hilarious. So as I'm going through and reading and practicing it now, I have those funny little memories of that time. And maybe subconsciously that those memories, that's instruction for you now. Those are, it's coaching guidelines that you're still remembering today for, you know, the next performance. Big time, big time. So, I mean, I won't have the big hardcover book, um, but I will, I will definitely have those, those tiny memories poking me from time to time as I go through it, I'm sure. Why did you decide to do this? Uh, you said it's probably something you wouldn't have done on your own. Uh, you were asked to do it, but what are your what are your thoughts there? Uh, you know, I bet it, obviously I think I'm just a bit nostalgic, and any sort of chance to connect with the memory of my dad is really special, and I want to do it. So it was um, it was a nice way to honor him. And, you know, with a story that we all love and music we all love. And this time of the year is so special. And um, it's just nice to be around kids who are excited. And, yeah, it's great. It's such a great time of the year. Are you surprised how this has evolved since you decided or gave the commitment that you would do it? Um, what has it turned into? A little bit. Um, it's, it's sort of at the time, I think I agreed to it in the summer and I sort of, oh my God, December, it's so far away. Sure. No problem. (laughs) And, um, and so I've done, you know, I've been practicing more and more and I've had it on in the car and, um, everybody from the Brought Music Festival has been sort of checking in. Okay. Are you ready? Or have you you thought about this? And, um, so now it sort of feels like, okay, now it's, sort of crept up on me and now it's here but um i am looking forward to it how does the family feel about this oh they're pumped um my my mom is definitely very excited and um my two brothers unfortunately both live one lives in vancouver and the other lives in new brunswick and they will not be here with their four kids but um, I know my extended family are coming and lots of my friends are coming in from Toronto. It's going to be fun. So what can you tell us about the show itself? Well, okay. Um, Twas the Night Before Christmas with a big orchestra. Um, The conductor, Martin McDonald, um, who apprenticed with my dad, um, and he'll wear his ugliest Christmas sweater for everyone. And there will be Christmas carolers in the lobby greeting everybody. Music from the Nutcracker, the Polar Express, and Home Alone, the movie. 
Um, I think there's going to be a sing-along with the audience and maybe a very super special couple from the North Pole may come. Not sure. Sounds like they may. <laughs> and yeah, kids are kids under 12 are only 10 bucks. So bring your kids, bring your grandkids, free parking. It's going to be fun. The Brought Music Festival closing its 2023 season with the musical magic of Christmas this Saturday at 3 o'clock at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center, 357 Wilson Street, featuring Alex Brought, daughter of Boris, making a special appearance to read was the night before Christmas, 40 years after making her debut on a stage in Nova Scotia at the age of six while her dad was conducting. Alex, this is going to be a very special day. Good luck to you. Thank you so, so much. Nice chatting with you. All right. Uh, whenever things get too hectic here, we love to go up into space where things seem a lot more peaceful. Uh, and an asteroid is eclipsing a star. It's not something you see every day, but early next week, stargazers will have a chance to witness what happens to the brightest star in the night sky when an asteroid goes in front of it, I guess. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm indeed, Scott. Always nice to chat. So what is happening here? And, and this is going to be very quick, is it not? It is. It'll only last about 15 seconds. Uh, the bad news, unfortunately, is that uh, you won't actually be able to see it here in Toronto. The eclipse path, it's an asteroid by the name of Leona, it's in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, is going to be passing in front of the bright star Betelgeuse. Uh, Betelgeuse is not the brightest star in the night sky, but it's probably about number five or six. So it's, it's right up there. Uh, and that's going to happen at 8.17 Eastern Time on Monday night. So literally, if you were on that eclipse path, you'd be looking at Betelgeuse, a nice, bright red supergiant, and for about 15 seconds, it would just about wink out entirely. Not quite entirely, but very, very close. It would be a very stunning event if we were on the eclipse path. So, again, Turkey, Italy, Spain, Miami, Florida Keys, uh, Asia, they're going to be able to view this, us not. Accurate? That, that is exactly right. Uh, because the asteroid Leona, is, it's relatively small. It's about 100 kilometers in diameter along its long axis. That will be enough to block out Betelgeuse's light, but only from a narrow path across the Earth. The entire Earth won't be able to see it, unlike, say, for example, a total lunar eclipse where you know, half the planet can see it if the geometry is correct. On this particular occasion, unfortunately, because of the size of Leona, it's just going to block out Betelgeuse's light for that narrow pathway that you just described. And will this look like a typical uh, eclipse, or will this just look like a light on and then off again? That's exactly right. Light on, light off. That's, uh, to most people, what it will look like. But from you know the perspective of astronomers, both amateurs and professionals, they'll be out in force along that eclipse path and just either side of that eclipse path, because the event itself will give us unprecedented information about the actual asteroid, particularly its size, whether or not it perhaps has a, an orbiting satellite around it, and it'll give us some insight into Betelgeuse itself. So there's a lot of information that we'll be able to glean from both the objects, both the star and the asteroid, for that 15 seconds of fame and glory. So that was my next question. What do we learn from this or, or people in, 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 uh, in your line of work? What do they learn from this sort of thing? And, and why does this allow them that opportunity? 
Well, when asteroids pass in front of stars, and they don't do it as often as we would like, let alone bright stars like Betelgeuse, so that everybody can see it, when asteroids do pass in front, then they are eclipsing that particular light. And so if we time how long the starlight disappears, and we do that from differing latitudes on the Earth, it literally takes a cross-sectional view of the asteroid, and we can literally build up a three-dimensional understanding of the physical size of the asteroid in question. So it gives us phenomenal opportunities to understand these asteroids if we have got uh, a satellite that's orbiting around that asteroid, and a lot of asteroids are what we call binary asteroids, we likely will pick that up as well. So that's what we get from the asteroid. From the star's point of view, by dimming it as we are doing it, uh, we are giving ourselves the opportunity to look more carefully at literally the extended atmosphere of Betelgeuse in this case, as well as having a look for any structure on the surface. You might remember Betelgeuse, about two years ago, or actually nearly four years ago now, dimmed unprecedented level of dimming of this particular star. And trying to understand that is still an ongoing activity. This opportunity on Monday should give us a little more insight into the structure around Betelgeuse as well as on Betelgeuse itself. Paul, were you always interested in math? Because I can't believe how much math is involved in this. <laughs> It was a necessary evil. I mean, I, I do enjoy math. I don't enjoy it as much as physics and astronomy, but you have to have a pretty good math background to be able to deal with the concepts of physics and astronomy. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't a matter of like or dislike. It just was a necessity. And so, you know, it went along for the ride. So with something like this doesn't happen very often. Is it a, is it a cycle? Is it predictable? It's absolutely predictable. Uh, having asteroids pass in front of stars as bright as Betelgeuse happens literally once every few decades. Asteroids will pass in front of fainter stars quite often, and, and we do these occultation measurements around the planet literally every night somewhere an asteroid is doing its thing. Mm -hmm. But it's how bright the star is. If the, if the star is too faint, Amateur astronomers in particular, and they're very, very helpful in this type of an observation. If the star is too faint, they can't pick it up. And, of course, therefore, we lose their expertise. But when it's as bright as Betelgeuse, literally everybody on the planet could be able to observe this, except for the fact that, as I said earlier, it's that very narrow path. But along that narrow eclipse path, there will be literally thousands of observations made. All right, kids, there you go. Keep up your maths and sciences. Uh, Professor Paul Delaney, Emeritus Professor, Faculty, uh, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University. Paul, always fascinating. Thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Have a good weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the uh, historic Shadot estate has reopened again after ongoing, uh, undergoing restoration at the work uh, at the work of the hands of local think tank Cardis. Over the past year, they've invested more than $2 million into the restoration and maintenance of the 187-year-old heritage property at one Belfour Drive. To talk more about all of this and moving forward, Michael Van Pelt is with us, CEO of Cardis, and here now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I sure am, Scott. Give us a little backstory about this estate. This estate was owned by the Belfour family, and Belfour actually gifted it to the Ontario Heritage Trust. But the city of Hamilton was responsible for stewarding the property. 
largely the property was left. It was uh, not uh, cared for uh, and maintained. And then Cardis offered to take care of the building, to restore the building, and then we would have the right to be able to use this length of the lease. And that's another 17 years. And right now, Scott, if you would come and see this Shadow property, the building is beautiful. After a year of really hard work, uh, environmental remediation, uh, upgrading electrical, all of those kind of things that you do to an old building that hasn't been cared for, we've done. And uh, three days ago, we got occupancy from the city of Hamilton. We're delighted by this. And what was needed to do in the restoration to get this to where it is now? In some ways, the restoration was typical of an older historic building, originally built, I think, in the 1830s, that just wasn't cared for and loved in its most recent days. So a lot of heat and cold variations, wallpaper falling, rotted plaster, um, asbestos in the building, um, those kind of issues, and undergraded electrical Uh, facility here. Just so much of that just basic work needed to be done. And that's the stuff you need to do to keep a building alive for the next generation. And any any surprises over the course of this reno? Yeah, I think there was two surprises. Number one, just the environmental remediation was a surprise. And as you well know, everyone knows it's a huge expense, but we just had to bite the bullet and get it done. That's what we did. And then second of the period of some pretty significant supply chain issues. Mm. And this is characteristic of all of restoration and construction today. Those cost significant delays and significant costs. But we're through that now. And uh, we bit the bullet and the investment is made. The most interesting thing, I think, from a public square point of view, Scott, is we made a promise to the Ontario Heritage Trust, to the city of Hamilton, that we would come in and restore this building, we'd make the investment. And there's always questions about that. But when you walk in today, you go, you know what? It's amazing. Mm. Cardis has kept their promises, and uh, this is going to be good for uh, the city of Hamilton. It's a great way to restore and keep a building that was decaying into the future. And we did it without the taxpayer uh, dollar obligation. We did this. We kept our promise to the city and said, we're not going to come back and ask them for money. Um, last night, we had a bunch of a community here of the, of the contractors and uh, supporters just celebrating the opening of this. We're very thankful, and I think the Ontario Heritage Trust is thankful. The mayor was here last night. She loved the building, and uh, we're just excited to be here and now get down to the work of Cardiff. So what is, why, why did Cardiff decide to get behind this? What will this be used for moving forward? So Cardis is a public policy think tank. So a lot of the kind of behind-the-scenes work that we do is research on public policy issues, attracting significant academics uh, to uh, have conversation and develop ways of looking at the public square where we can make improvements, we can be part of the democratic dialogue of saying, how do we do this better? How do we live together better? So this is the kind of space where these people are meeting, workstations for academics, research areas conversation places. That's what Shadok is all about, and that's what it's going to be about in the future. Do Hamiltonians, you think, realize the historical depth of this city? Oh, that's just a great question. Just to make it personal, when I was a young man at at, uh, McMaster University, I would kind of sneak into, 
I won't say if it was legal or not, but I would sneak into some of these properties and just enjoy the history. Mm. And for some reason, history doesn't play the prominent role it used to have. Um, but man, when you get into it, people love it. They're encouraged by it. It tells them a little, it gives them a little link to their past. It tells them stories that, you know what, those stories may matter to you today. And when you come here, you get a feel of that. You get a feel of, oh, this is what, this is what built this great city of Hamilton. This is a little piece of that puzzle. Mm. And it's not always pretty. There was, there's, there was family tension in this building. There was nation against nation. Uh, on this land, there's brokenness, but there's also greatness. And what you will see the greatness when you kind of drive up and have a look at the building. And lots of us travel around the world to see it and don't realize it is uh, right here in our own backyard in many ways. Michael Van Pelt with us, CEO of Cardis, the historic Shadot estate has now reopened. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Scott, you're welcome to meet us here. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, the article by the editorial board of the Globe and Mail, Canada's election interference inquiry starts off on the wrong foot. If Canadians hope to uh, hope the launch of Ottawa's public inquiry into foreign election interference would bring clarity to the issue, this week put paid to any such optimism as on Monday the judge heading the inquiry issued a ruling uh, who will have full standing to question witnesses and examine confidential uh, evidence during the inquiry's critical first stage. That's when the inquiry will look at the impact on foreign interference on elections in 2019 and 2021 and evaluate the government's response when they knew what uh, about meddling and designed to boost the liberal chances in some writings. That means while members of the liberal government are testifying, reps from the other two main parties will not be allowed to question them or see any relevant evidence that hasn't been made public. To talk more about all of this and what it all means to to uh, the inquiry and, and moving forward, will we get the answers that we need? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. Are we going to get any kind of answers? I mean, Phil, all we're hearing about is interference, whether it's election, whether it's uh, India, China, what have you. It, it, it's it's obviously penetrating uh, Canadian systems. Are, are we going to find out any answers to any questions with this inquiry? Um, let's put it this way, Scott. The chances of getting real answers to real issues are about as good as the Leafs winning the Cup this year. And I'm sorry to say that if you're listening to the <laughs> fans. But um, no, I mean, you know, the government showed quite, it showed its colors quite early. It delayed, delayed, delayed this inquiry. Uh, there are some good people that are going to be, you know, part of the inquiry. But no, I don't think there'll be any answers. And I think that they'll kick this can down the road. And it, it again, goes to show um, how little this government cares about things like national security and election interference by our enemies. This isn't partisan, though. This is, shouldn't this cross all party lines? This is about national security. You're absolutely right. And, you know, when it comes to foreign interference in our elections, governments of both stripes, so both the Conservatives and the Liberals, have been advised and warned by CSIS, my former employer, dating back to the 2000s about this happening. And both governments have chosen to ignore it. So you're right. It is not a partisan issue. But again, I, I think the bottom line for me, Scott, is that National security is not a vote getter. You know, can I afford my rent? Can I pay my mortgage? Can I, you know, can I buy food for my kids? 
And I think governments realize that. And as a consequence, they don't take these issues seriously, which then translates into not putting a lot of credibility and resources into inquiries of this nature. Uh, that being said, the more Canadians are exposed to this and realize how much others have influence and interfere. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that now over the debate between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, does this not come to the forefront and, and, and people start asking questions about what we're, what we know, what we don't know and what we're doing to protect ourselves? I was sincerely, I would sincerely hope so, Scott. I would hope that Canadians do care because we're talking about the very foundations of our democracy and we saw what happened in you know the 2020 election south of the border where one candidate claimed that the vote was fixed and the the results weren't true we don't want to go down that road but then again what was the last participation rate in the federal election it's been declining for years so my, my fear is that maybe canadians don't care enough so it's not just governments that don't seem to care about whether our elections are free and fair and um you know don't have any foreign interference, but maybe Canadians don't. I, I, I'm with you. I mean, but I'm biased. I worked in security intelligence yeah. for 32 years. I hope people care. And let, let's be optimistic here. It is, you know, it's Friday afternoon. Let's be optimistic that, that the people finally wake up and smell the roses. I can certainly understand the judge being concerned about how this could become partisan and turn into a sideshow. But why make these decisions that wouldn't let the opposition question? I really have no idea. And this is why I'm not a big fan of inquiries. You know, it seems to be a Canadian tradition. We hold an inquiry for for anything. What should have happened is when, you know, when this intelligence was received in the first place, it should have been acted upon and actions should have been taken by the government to ensure that it didn't spread, that we didn't have foreign agents intimidating Canadians, trying to get them to vote a certain way. I guess this is a second best to have it aired in public. But um, I just don't see where inquiries in the past, in all honesty, have led to significant change down the road. Can this be fixed? Because it really seems as this, as if the government's thrown up its hands and said, oh, nothing we can do about this. It happens to everybody. It happens all the time. Nothing we can do. It can be fixed by listening to your intelligence and law enforcement agencies and giving them the resources to investigate. And where it is found that foreigners who uh, meddle in our elections? If they're here on Canadian soil, they're, and they're not Canadians, they can be they can be PNG declared persona non grata. If they're Canadians, they can be charged under. I'm sure there's laws on the books that say you can't try to you know um, influence an election in one direction or another. So yeah, action can be taken, but it doesn't seem to be taken seriously by this government or previous governments for that matter. Uh, and as we mentioned, this keeps coming up. It ke- it's not just the, you know, the story over uh, uh, election interference and Michael Chong of way back when has, has sort of fallen by the wayside. It seems every week there's a new and, and another example of this. It keeps coming up. Um, as well as, as another article out of the Globe and Mail from Andrew Coyne, as security threats mount, the holes in Canada's defenses can no longer be ignored. This again, more and more headlines like this we are finally seeing we are and and so actually you know as you, your previous question can action be taken yes we can we can fund our military to the two percent nato floor that is demanded in which the parameters that have no intention of meeting the two percent floor we can ensure that ceases in the rcmp maybe they have to be uh reformed or changes made but we have to ensure that they have the men and women necessary to do the investigations and collect the intelligence and evidence that's required and that and the, and the most important thing scott and you and i've talked about this a lot we need a government to adopt to create an intelligence culture where intelligence is valued and is used to make better decisions does it get to a point where it's too late, Phil? 
It's never too late, Scott. Um, a lot's happened, but the, the alternative is to, to do nothing. And if nothing is done, then our adversaries will see that nothing is done, and they'll simply get worse and worse and worse. So no, we can we can put a, a finger in the dike here and try to stop it from getting worse. But it, that it, that calls for action right now. And we're entering, let's face it, we're almost entering election season. I mean, there'll be a, a federal election within two years at the maximum. My fear is this, this can uh, gets kicked down the road even further. All right, I'm going to go uh, right off topic and T-bone you here, Phil. Obviously, <laughs> we've been seeing with what's been happening uh, between Israel and Hamas. Do you see an out here? Do you see an ending for this? Surprisingly, there's been some optimism I've been reading in places like The Economist that say actually there is a, a thin sliver of hope that this could lead to meaningful peace. The problem is, is that Hamas has to agree to stop attacking Israel, and I'm not sure they'll do that. Secondly, the Netanyahu government has to stop um, preventing a, a true Palestinian state from, from being created in the West Bank and Gaza. So a lot of parties have to basically abandon positions they've adopted for, for quite some time. But, you know, again, I'll adopt the Friday theme. I'm going to a weekend, so are you. I'll be optimistic and say that if the right actors are at the table, action can be taken to get something going, and we can get beyond this, this hellhole that we have right now in Gaza. How do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Oh, man, how much time do we have? You know, look, at Hamas was elected for a variety of reasons. There's a corruption in the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. There were people who were upset with lack, lack of resources, lack of jobs. Israel wasn't helping, but now there were the Palestinian authorities with Mahmoud Abbas. Hamas does provide uh, social services, which the PA did not. So, I mean, Hamas is not just a terrorist group. It is a, it's a social services agency. What Palestinians have to recognize is that, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, until as long as you're governed by an organization, which, by the way, Canada lists as a, as a terrorist entity, yeah, yeah. it's not going to get the world's sympathy. So there has to be a division there. And but uh, again, a lot a lot of actors, including at the top of the list, Israel has to allow for the mechanisms to be created so Palestinians can actually live a decent life. Bill Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS Allen uh, analyst. Always fascinating. Phil, thanks so much for your time. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. We'll take care. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Friday told soldiers who had fought in the Ukraine war that he would run for president again in the 2024 election, a move that will allow the former KGB spy to stay in power until at least 2030, so says Reuters. To talk more about all of this and what it means for the world moving forward, let's bring in Arl Brown, professor, international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Uh, how much does the distraction of world conflict uh, that is going on now uh, distract or take away from uh, what is going on with Putin? We certainly don't spend as much time looking at what, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, how that conflict is going. But clearly, there is an impatience in the Western countries. Democracies tend to focus inwardly. And we know that Ukraine needs more help. They need more economic help. They certainly need more military help. Uh, in the United States, uh, they have not yet passed the bill that would provide that help. I expect it will be passed at some point, but it uh, creates an atmosphere of uncertainty. And because of this, Vladimir Putin appears to think that time is on his side. And even though by Russian standard, he's quite elderly, 71, he uh, has decided obviously to run it was almost comical that he was uh, handing out these uh, major awards to the soldiers who were fighting the war in Ukraine, a war of aggression, uh, 
where they are committing all sorts of atrocities, and they were being given some of the highest honors, and a lieutenant colonel asked Putin to run, and he said, well, I have been hesitating, but I will run. He may as well have announced the results uh, already mm. because the results are in. Uh, uh, this is a sure thing. And he may as well have said what percentage he will win by because that probably has already been decided as well in the Kremlin. Does this change the stance of the U.S., uh, creating um, uh, more angst, perhaps, draw attention to the fact that he's not going anywhere? I don't think there was any expectation in the U.S. or elsewhere that Vladimir Putin was not going to run because given the political system that he has, he does not have the option of retiring. This is not uh, a place where you leave office and then you write your memoirs because there are too many bodies, too many people who have disappeared because of Vladimir Putin. He's got far too much blood on his hands. And uh, there are all sorts of risks, both domestic and external. He had just visited Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, he has been able to go elsewhere because despite the fact that there is a warrant for his arrest from the prosecutor in the International Criminal Court. As long as he is the leader of uh, Russia, he has been untouchable. Uh, if he were to leave that position, then it would be an entirely different situation. So I think uh, Western governments expected him to run, expect him to try to cling to power as long as possible. And ultimately, he will be removed either because the Russians lose the war or because uh, no one is immoral. Um, what about other powers, China and India? How do they view this? Does it work to their advantage? China has an interesting relationship with Russia. There's a pretense that this is a relationship of equals when very clearly Russia has become increasingly a client state, a vassal state of China. The Chinese economy is vastly larger than that of Russia. The Russian economy, in nominal terms, is really not much bigger than that of Canada. It's roughly the size of that of uh, uh, Italy's. And uh, Vladimir Putin is pleading with the Chinese for uh, political support uh, in international fora, is pleading for technological transfers. Uh, he is pleading for economic help. And so, in a sense, uh, he has mortgaged Russia's future internationally. As far as India is concerned, uh, there is some competition as to influence in the South. India wants to be the leader of the South, and Russia also wants to play a large role in the South, particularly in the case of BRICS. So it is a relationship of convenience uh, with India, where India has not supported the Russian aggression, but has not come out fully either to condemn it. And India has been purchasing oil from Russia, and that helps give the Russian economy a lifeline. Are you surprised the Israeli-Hamas conflict has superseded Ukraine? It seems to have taken the attention away from it. Not really, because... Uh, uh, Israel has always been a huge fascination and focus for the United Nations. If a Martian were to land uh, in uh, uh, Washington or, or New York or any capital and uh, look at the United Nations, uh, it would think that uh, uh, there is no greater threat to uh, the international system than little Israel. And we can go back many, many 
in many years, and the media has also this large fascination. And uh, we did not have the same uh, kind of interest when in Syria, for example, the Syrian regime killed uh, uh, half a million people. Uh, we did not see the United Nations uh, Secretary General use Article 99 to call for an emergency measure. Uh, we have uh, a war going on uh, in, in Darfur. Uh, we have other conflicts. So uh, anything in the Middle East will generate a huge amount uh, of attention. Ukraine was in Europe, so this is why we had more attention than, let's say, we paid to conflicts uh, in the DR Congo. But uh, there is a degree of uh, uh, fatigue uh, uh, with Ukraine because there were exaggerated expectations. But it is a vital conflict. It is something that is crucially important for democracies, what is happening in Ukraine, and we better pay attention to it. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, as always, fascinating. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Cindy Woodhouse became the new National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations yesterday with her closest challenger conceding after six rounds of voting that stretched late into the previous night. Uh, she has been Manitoba Regional Chief of the Political Ad- uh, Advocacy Organization representing more than 600 First Nations across Canada. Uh, she thanked former National Chief Roseanne Archibald saying she had smashed the glass ceiling before her, uh, for us. Uh, Archibald was ousted earlier this year over the findings of an investigation into complaints from staff members about her conduct. To talk more about all of this, Liam Midzane Gobin is with us, settler scholar and assistant professor, political science, Brock University, and here now. Liam, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. So your thoughts on this and even the ousting of uh, Chief Roseanne Archibald. Uh, Some have said or commented that it was less about her aggression and her tactics, more about she was challenging the status quo. What are your thoughts? It's hard to know. There's been a lot of, I think, difficulty and um disagreement in some respects over the best approach for the AFN to take, especially with this government. Um, We've seen quite a bit of um, turmoil in the words of a lot of the uh, news reports that we've seen. So in some respects, uh, the election of Woodhouse as national chief and her words to thank Archibald um, for her previous work, I think underscore one of the really important lessons that we can take from a lot of Indigenous organizing is that there really is this emphasis on unity. So even if we're seeing a lot of turmoil and, you know, six ballots is is a lot, of course, um, there's a lot of work going on both behind the scenes and in public to really emphasize that like First Nations are in this together and that they are willing to line up and, and really stand by each other regardless of um, a lot of potential other disagreements that we saw kind of between Pratt and Woodhouse. So um, I think that that emphasis on unity is one that that we really should be should be taking from this because that's been a feature of a lot of the, the discourse around it. Liam, that was my next question was about it, it taking uh, several rounds. And, and my question was going to be unified on policy, but clearly they've come out of this and are now unified. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I think that people are always going to have different 
um, points of yeah. view on particular policies. Like one of the things that I keep thinking of is if you were to get all 10 premiers in the same room and ask them to yeah. agree on any policy that wasn't ask the federal government for more money or say it's the federal government's problem, it's going to mm. be really hard to get their agreement on on that, right? And in this case, we're talking about 600 or so chiefs that yeah. are eligible to vote in these elections. So there's going to be disagreement. I think that that's kind of a given. But one of the things that we did see, um, especially from, from David Pratt, as he conceded, was his throwing of support behind Woodhouse. And that's been a feature of AFN elections in the past as well. We saw the same thing with Perry Bogard and Sean Atlio when their mm. uh, challengers conceded. It's been this consistent refrain to say, look, whoever at the time, in this case, it's uh, Cindy Woodhouse, has the majority of the support and we're going to rally behind her. And that's something that I think or I hope we'll really be able to um, let the AFN kind of stand after a bit of, um, well, some really some some troubles with the way that it handled the Archibald situation. Uh, was her win expected? Oh, uh, that's hard to say. I mean, in some respects, no, because I think the most she most support she garnered was 50.8%. And so um, I think it's hard to say when she got just over a majority of the votes that it was an expected, um, uh, an expected success. On the other hand, I think what we did see, what we probably should have expected is a kind of difference in voting between those who want to work more with the federal government. Um, so Woodhouse's background is negotiating um, with like for the AFN with um, the federal government. And so there's a certain willingness to to work there and to find common ground. And that was really successful. It was a $23 billion settlement that she secured. Um, on the other hand, David Pratt kind of represented a bit more of an antagonistic potential approach with the federal government. And so, um, yeah, like, that is the kind of different interpretation of what First Nations politics should be with regards to the federal government that we should have expected. Mm. Um, uh, my next question was, what does she bring? But you talked about negotiation skills and ability to bridge gaps. Is that accurate? I mean, definitely that. Um, I think also, and one of the things that she's really emphasized is she's worked with a lot of former national chiefs. Um, she worked for Perry Bellegarde. She worked for Sean Atlio. She has a history with the organization, and that's going to be important. Um, one of the things that we've seen is almost a bit of searching from the AFN to figure out how best to work with this current government, the one that um, really promised a lot on reconciliation and yet doesn't seem to have delivered in the way that a lot of the chiefs were going to be expecting and a lot of First Nations certainly expected. And so I think having that ability to draw on her working knowledge from the organization's past, as well as some relationships with the federal government of today and, and some successes recently, um, you know, we're going to we're going to see um, that kind of expertise and, and that kind of experience really um, come through in the way she approaches the job. Her biggest challenge moving forward. Oh, um, <laughs> I think in some respects, it's the the biggest challenge that faces any national chief. Um, one of the things about the AFN is that it's an advocacy organization. Um, it does policy development, but and but fundamentally, its job is to advocate to the federal government on behalf of about 600 individual First Nations who hold the kind of final authority and like rights and title power. And so they're, the national chief is in a position where they're put up as kind of a powerful leader in the federal political scene. And, and that's true, but 
they can't do things on their own. And so that challenge is going to be not only finding ground with the federal government to be able to come to agreement and get wins on policy, but then also kind of doing that in a context where they're not necessarily the one with the final vote. And so um, that internal politicking um, is something that just happens in every advocacy organization, um, but it's going to be a thing that that really she's going to have to pay attention to. Liam Midsane Gobin with a settler scholar and assistant professor of political science, Brock University. Cindy Woodhouse has been elected the new national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Liam, thank you for the time and insight. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Scott. Beer could cost more next year. Well, what a surprise. Uh, and workers and unions are banding together to oppose the almost 5% beer tax increase. 4.7% uh, federal beer and excise duties are set to increase uh, by 4.7% uh, by April of 2024, which will likely be reflected in the price of a case of beer. Uh, at the time when Canadians are grappling with the highest cost of living uh, increases in decades, compounded by everything that we've seen, uh, this is not the time, they say. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in C.J. Healy, President of Beer Canada, and with us now. C.J., thanks for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Are you surprised that this hasn't gained more attention? I mean, you know, in the old days, it was, you know, the sin taxes. They're increasing the price of smokes and booze and everybody goes through the roof. And it was often an election issue. Now it kind of gets put in the back of things and nobody really realizes that it's going on. And it just seems to be a cash cow for governments. It's really nefarious the way the government has approached beer taxes in the last few years, as opposed to having this public debate that we used to have when a minister of finance wanted to raise beer taxes. And you're right, Scott, there was uproar in the streets about that um, those proposals. But a few years ago, what the government did was introduce a automatic hidden tax increase every year based on inflation. Um, so that's what the brewery unions are, are worried about, uh, their impact on the jobs of this sort of every year annual cumulative increase in beer taxes that the federal government is, is imposing. And, you know, we remember this, that uh, the prime minister brought this in at a time when inflation was extremely low, record setting low, and nobody seemed to care or mind that every year this was going to go up by the price of inflation. But then all of a sudden, boom, uh, inflation, you know, anywhere from five to eight percent over the last year or two. That means a substantial gain. Absolutely right. So the Department of Finance had this uh, Goldilocks uh, crystal ball, right, where we're going to stay in this uh, low inflation, low interest rate environment, and that they could sort of uh, have this automatic inflation-based increase and then walk away and not pay any more attention to it. And while that crystal ball uh, crashed uh, a couple of years ago, and inflation just sort of came roaring back. And so now we're trying to pay uh, catch up and fix this uh, flawed policy uh, before it, you know, imposes uh, such uh, a level of harm on the industry that you see, you know, job losses, brewery closures, hospitality closures, uh, all of those negative ramifications. Uh, hospitality, uh, obviously going to feel the pinch. Everybody's complaining now because, of course, when we came out of the pandemic, everybody wanted to help hospitality and do what they can. But then they're faced with higher prices just like everybody else. And this is just adding to inflation. Scott, beer is one of the most profitable uh, elements that a hospitality uh, bar restaurant can serve, right? And uh, if that business uh, 
weakens because prices are too high and uh, costs are too high, it, it will put those bars and restaurants out of business because they took on a, so much debt through the pandemic. Uh, and then as soon as they opened up, they saw their food costs increase, their rent increase, their insurance increase. So uh, our friends at the hospitality uh, businesses say that, you know, over half of them are losing money or only breaking even. And so if there's a beer tax increase on sort of this fundamental part of their business, uh, it will put too many of them uh, over the cliff. Is anybody listening? Is anybody, is this resonating? Because again, uh, other than organizations like yourself that are, are trying to bring this to people's attention, it, it really doesn't seem to be resonating much. Well, we have tremendous support from mem individual members of parliament from all parties in Ottawa. And the, the, the nut that we haven't cracked are these functionaries, these non-elected officials uh, who, you know, don't have to go back to the writings to get reelected every year or every four years. Uh, and so that's the nut to crack is to make sure that the uh, the public and consumers voice their, their displeasure with this idea of an automatic increase at the worst possible time. And so we, you know, we're optimistic that their voices will be heard and that some remedial action is taken before it comes into effect on April 1st. So we have a little bit of time, but not a ton of time. And, you know, having an automatic accelerator tax, which just happens every year and just happens to be inflation. I mean, there's no debate about this whatsoever. It just it clicks in every year. You know, there's an old saying, no taxation without representation. And mm. this idea of an automatic increase sort of takes away that role of parliament and of individual members to say, I agree with this or I disagree with that. They don't even have a voice. It's, it's crazy that we've gone to this point uh, within the Canadian uh, government uh, system in Ottawa. It's crazy. Uh, what is the health of uh, breweries in Canada? Very precarious. Uh, similar to our hospitality partners, uh, a lot of uh, smaller brewers took on a lot of debt to keep themselves going through the um, pandemic. Uh, they relied a lot on their own tap rooms, uh, typically. And so when those were closed, that really hurt their business. Uh, beer is a very social beverage. So, you know, anywhere between 20 and 25% of our sales are through uh, bars, restaurants, festivals, uh, professional sporting venues, all those kind of places. And so the, the business is really, really soft. Uh, and like every other uh, agri-food processing industry in Canada, we saw all our input go through the roof uh, in the last year and a half or so. You know, barley up 60%, packaging costs up 40%, transport costs doubling. So it's a very precarious circumstance. And again, as I said, Scott, this would be the worst time to try to impose another $33 million tax hit on Canadian brewers. Uh, so you've got a, a letter going to politicians uh, representing uh, various parts of the industry and such. Is the government listening? Any feedback from this? Well, the, the feedback from individual members of parliament, so the, the, the person who uh, goes back to the writing uh, every week, uh, and is hearing from their constituents that this is a really, really bad idea. We've got a lot of positive response there, but unfortunately, from the uh, the non-elected decision makers, the people who uh, have the pen, uh, not a lot of of, of uh, concrete commitments at this point. So uh, that's why everybody is sort of ramping up this sort of public campaign uh, so that we can talk about it and raise ourselves this issue up to a level where they have to pay attention. Uh, obviously, you represent the beer industry, but does this not involve this accelerator tax all alcohol? 
It, it does, absolutely. Uh, but beer is sort of the, uh, the the dominant beverage alcohol category mm-hmm. in, in Canada, right? We represent, you know, anywhere between uh, 50 and 55% of all sales. Uh, so, uh, and we are the one that is most impacted on the hospitality side. But yes, absolutely. It would also have negative impacts on Canadian wineries and Canadian distilleries, uh, large and small. So it's a big, big coalition that is fighting this. Uh, we have hospitality, we have uh, farmers, we have brewery workers, uh, we have our, our, our colleagues in the other uh, alcohol categories, uh, tourism. Uh, beer and alcohol is really uh, fundamental to the economy of so many communities, large and small across uh, Canada, including in, in Hamilton. And, and so um, there's lots of people who are stepping up and saying this is really not the right time to raise alcohol taxes. C.J. Hilly with us, president of Beer Canada, and they've sent a letter to politicians signed by representatives across the industry to hold off the 4.7 beer tax increase and all alcohol coming April 1st. It's an accelerator tax that isn't debated. It just happens. C.J., thanks for the time. Uh, Be well. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the time. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. I understand you're going to be talking today on your show about cell phones in class. Yeah, well, so we had, yeah, we um, we had Paul Bennett, who's, uh, I would say, the leading or one of certainly the leading educational experts in this country. We had him on the other day because the... PISA results came out. Now, I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about these things. Um, but according to those in the educational analysis and study world, this is, as he describes it, like the Super Bowl. Every three years, you get these world results come out about how 15-year-olds are doing across the world. And what makes this mm-hmm. so unique is it's not, uh, it's not the, um, what do you call it? The test that all the kids do up here, the, uh, um, EKO, EKO, EQAO. It's not that because this is an international thing. We are comparing ourselves to England, to India, to Japan, to China, to everywhere. Um, and what we found and what we talked about was that our math marks have been going down consistently since 2003. They're on a straight downwards trajectory, which is not good. But one of the other things that was buried in this report was the suggestion from so many places. And this was the students themselves saying cell phones are a massive distraction. And does that to you not seem like it's just logical? I don't know why this is such a problem. I really don't. And, um, I I, I don't understand parents that say, well, you try to take a phone off a kid. Okay. I will bring me your kid. Uh, but I'm it's not bigger. like we're, it's not like we're throwing them out. I'm, no, it's, it's not I, like we're putting them into a compressor and ruining no, them, put them no. in a box at the front of the room and you get them and, when you walk out. And here's the other thing I have found over the years that cell phones have been the ultimate disciplining tool. It's very simple. You knock that off junior or the cell phone's yeah. gone. And the, it's like you're, it's like you're putting a bag over their head. It's like you're, you're, you're depriving them of oxygen. So, you know, other than you don't have the ability to parent your kid or the teacher doesn't, um, I don't understand why this is a problem. That's the rule. Sorry. It's, it's, so one of the most truly ludicrous arguments that I've ever heard is, well, if there was ever to be an active shooter in the school, if kids don't have their cell phones, who's going to call 911? And I say, okay, so yes, I know shootings happen in schools and I don't want to, you know, poo-poo that, but 
it's, it's not like it's every school every day and you would still have the phones in the class. They would just yeah, not I, be I, right beside you and the so teacher what, could still have his or her phone. Is, is that alluding that if you, every kid in the school doesn't have their phone on them, that somehow there'll be a delay in 911 well, that's being the called? Suggestion. I don't yeah. get this. And that's ridiculous. Here's the, here's the part about this that now maybe it's just a radio thing. I don't know. Cause I'm assuming what your answer is going to be. Cause I know darn well what my answer is. If we had had cell phones, if I'd had iPhones, like I'm holding right now, if we'd had those in the classroom when we were in school, I can tell you, I would have never paid attention to anything. It would have, I would have been hopeless with a cell phone beside me. I'm hopeless now with a cell phone. And I like to think that I've matured a tiny bit that I would have literally learned absolutely zero if I could have somehow surreptitiously been playing candy crush all day long in class or texting my friends. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's times when it's needed. I mean, it's a great tool. It's a great educational tool. It's a great research tool when the time is right, but that's not when a teacher is trying to lecture in class and keep everybody's attention. When it's time to do your research and your work, get the phone out, go nuts. But it shouldn't be, uh, teachers should not have to compete with this in class. Well, no. And, and the other argument that is given all the time is, well, you know, they need it for a calculator. Well, great. I, 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 I recall even back in the dark ages when I was in high school, we, there was a company called Texas Instruments. They did yeah. very well producing just calculators. You could hand yeah. out, you know, we don't say. And you know, my kid had to go get a calculator for that very reason. It's just like, you know, you get a calculator, you don't get the phone. Well, we, you know what we do in every school, it seems at times someone's going to need a pair of scissors. We don't say, well, we got to give every kid a pair of scissors to have with them at all time, just in case we need scissors. You say here, we'll hand you a pair, a set of scissors to be able to use. Schools could rather than investing necessarily in all kinds of other stuff. Why not just buy a thousand Texas Instruments simple calculators and have them in the class? And if it's really, if that's what this is about, that you need a calculator. I it's mean, it's not about that. You could also say, well, why not teach kids how to do the math so you don't need the calculator? That's a yeah. whole other issue that yeah. by itself yeah. though, but no, it makes, it's, it makes no sense. And I'm with you. I don't understand how this has been a controversial issue. I don't, but it is. It I don't is. think it's a discipline. I, I don't think it's a technological problem. I think it's a discipline problem. I think it's the, it's not having control over your kid or over your classroom. And you know, I'm uh, the teachers. But, but I'll the defend teachers. them because lots of the parents will defend the kids here. So that's right. The and teachers. The teachers are on, on an island by themselves. But and are, no, they shouldn't have to compete with it. And is the administration backing them? If a teacher said, "I want to yeah. have the cell phones in a box. I'm going to go home and build a box with little bo yeah. pockets in here, and every kid just drops their cell phone, and the kids complain." Is the administration, whether that's the principal or the school board, going to say to the teacher, Miss Smith, I'm with you. This is a distraction. Or are they going to say, Miss Smith, what are you doing? Give them their phones. No, I remember talking to you about this with, uh, and I saw this in a, in a uh, sporting store where a coach can buy like what looks like a suit uh, bag, but it's got pouches in it for everybody's phone. And it yep. sits at the door and every player drops their phone in before they get into the dressing room. It's the same thing. I, uh, I applaud, we don't do this. We should have done this. This is a mistake of mine yeah. and my wife, but we, I, I've heard of families that have their cell phone bowl at the front door or something. And when yeah. you come into the house, you drop your phone in there and we're going to yeah. have dinner and no one has their phone near That's them. That's a dinner. strict, it's a strict rule at our table. The phone is not out at the kitchen table. The phone is not out. And guess what? It works every so often. You got to remind, but it works. Yeah. No, I, I'm, uh, I don't, I, as I say, I just don't understand 
no. how this is a controversial issue and why more places have not simply said, you know what, um, we know how, what our scores are. We know what our grades are with cell phones in the class. For, for a two-year sample, we yeah. are going to say no phones in the class just to see what might happen. And who knows, Scott, maybe at the end of those two years, we discover that the grades don't change and everyone says, fine, have your phone back. But I suspect that it would be different. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your spectator. Scott, have a great show. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Our last word of the day comes from the email in Barb on Katrina Gold, the House Speaker, talking about the filibuster in the House of Commons. Hi, Scott. I'm so glad the Liberals are concerned about the cost of a filibuster. Last time I checked, it's a well-known, very legal parliamentary strategy. Uh, can't believe we are stuck with this government for another 18 months. Oh, well, just let me know when the voting date is, and I'll exercise my democratic right. Cheers. Barb and Belleville. Keep right, except to pass. <laughs> 